Richard Foster, spiritual formation author, writes in his book on prayer, which is one of my favorite books, these words. He says, the truth of the matter is, we all come to prayer with a tangled mass of motives, altruistic and selfish, merciful and hateful, loving and bitter. This side of eternity will never unravel the good from the bad, the pure from the impure, but what I have come to see is that God is big enough to receive us in all this mixture. We do not have to be bright or pure or filled with faith or anything. This is what grace means. And not only are we saved by grace and we live by grace, we pray by grace. I don't know about you, but for me, that thought just opens up doors of hope in me to once again begin to consider another sermon on prayer. In today's passage, the young disciples say to Jesus, teach us, teach us to pray. They're traveling with Jesus on what John has called their road trip to Jerusalem. Raising my own two sons, some, I just know that some of our best conversations happened on road trips to and from activities. Now, granted, that was before we allowed smartphones in their lives, which greatly enhanced the opportunity of conversation. <laughs> it was a time that we could just process. And I don't know, I think research have actually said this. It, kids talk more in cars because they're facing forward and they're not looking eye to eye at you, especially for boys. And we just have great conversations during those times. And I could hear what they were thinking, what they were processing, what, what was funny that happened in their life yesterday, or what was something really hard they were dealing with. Well, this first century road trip, also without cell phones, in fact, even without a car, gave them plenty of time to just walk with Jesus, gave more space for the disciples to ask questions and, and to be with Jesus. You have to realize by this time in Jesus' ministries, three years in, he's so pressed by the crowds, by the demands of ministry, the challenge of religious bullies, that, that while the disciples learned a lot just by being with Jesus, right, and walking with him and, and watching this was a time of undivided attention that they could get with Jesus, and they took advantage of that. So I've asked uh, Dan Williams this morning if he'd come and read today's passage at the end of it. Just a reminder, he will say, this is the word of the Lord, and we're going to respond by saying, thanks be to God. This is Dan's first time to read scripture, and I want you to know he's one of our elders, and can we just give it up for all of our elders? They work so hard on our behalf. Thank you. This reading is from uh, Luke, Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Once Jesus was in a certain place praying, as he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Jesus said, this is how you should pray. Father, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. Give us each day the, day, the food we need and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation. 
Then teaching them more about prayer, he used this story. Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight, wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. You say to him, a friend of mine has just arrived for a visit, and I have nothing for him to eat. And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, don't bother me, the door is locked for the night, and my family and I are in bed. I can't help you. But I tell you this, though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. And so I tell you, keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. You fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Dan. One of my favorite feel-good movies is a, I don't know, maybe call it a chick flick, right? <laughs> uh, but it's You've Got Mail. If I am depressed or I've just been down for a while, I pop this in. I think Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan are, are so cute. Kind of reminds me of uh, Hannah and Mike this morning, right? <laughs> They're just cute. <laughs> but in this movie, Tom Hanks plays uh, Joe Fox and his his family owns one of those big box bookstores that starts gobbling up the little independent, privately owned bookstores in town, including the adorable bookstore just around the corner <clears throat> owned by Kathleen Kelly, which Meg Ryan plays. So the two of them meet over email uh, in a chat room where everybody's anonymous. But somehow Joe Fox finds out who she is, but she doesn't yet know who he is. And she starts complaining to him, bemoaning that her business is about to tank. And he says, business? business? I, I know business. I can give you advice on business. And so he starts out quoting uh, with this quote from The Godfather. He says, the first thing you have to know is it's not personal, it's business. And she, I should have had somebody else who could come up and do the Godfather voice. I just can't manage it. But you can probably hear it in your, <clears throat> in your mind. So as she reacts to that. As soon as he says, it's not personal, it's business. She says, of course it's personal. It matters to me. If, what is it if it's not personal? And I think one of Jesus' lessons in Luke 11 is that prayer, if, if prayer is anything, it's personal. If it matters to us, it matters to God. Eugene Peterson writes, Jesus is our primary revelation that God is personal, extravagantly personal. When we deal with God, we're not dealing with a spiritual principle, a religious idea, an ethical 
cause or a mystical feeling. We are dealing personally with the person of Jesus, and he is dealing personally with us. So take that, Joe Fox. I get how we can take that truth about Jesus, though, and, and turn it prayer into thinking of, that it's all about us. So we don't want to do that. I get that. But we also don't want to throw the baby out with the, with the bathwater. Prayer is absolutely personal and about our relationship with God. We want to remember that, that Jesus was a physical being, just like we are. And part of the reason we, that that's important is because it may, helps us understand that he can relate to who we are. Jesus had a body as well as a soul. He ate bread and fish. He drank water and wine. He spoke to people eye to eye, and he listened to what they had to say. He had a name as uh, a personal name as common back then as maybe Bob and Jennifer are to us today. He was just a guy in the community in so many ways. He wept. He got angry. He touched people, and he received touch. In other words, he was, he was at home with his humanity. He was at home with his body, uh, his physical needs, and his family. And he wants us to know that he's at home with our needs, our very practical, real needs. He's at home with, with our messy families. You think, you know, you think messy family, Jesus, you think, oh, did Jesus have this perfect family? Uh-uh. You know, first of all, he's got a mom who's got kind of a questionable reputation, right? I mean, we all know the backstory, so we know that Mary was righteous, but she lived in a culture that would forever question her. So Jesus had that to deal with. Don't forget his brothers and sisters and even mother at sometimes thought he was insane. They'd, they'd question him. So Jesus knows all about that. We can pray. Jesus wants us to pray right smack in the middle of our humanness with our very real needs, with our messy families, and just share with him what our prayers are. I don't know if you've seen the ads recently, but they caught my eye before I even, I now know what organization is behind them and actually New Hope is looking to get involved with the campaign that's going on around the United States. But maybe you've seen, I saw them on March Madness yesterday, uh, these commercials that they show some gritty present, some gritty circumstance in somebody's life, maybe an unwed mother. And then at the end of the commercial, it goes back and just says, he gets us, and it's about Jesus, okay? And that's really what this is about. Jesus, Jesus absolutely gets us. We can come to him in the middle of our life with whatever is going on. Why do you, so number one, prayer to Jesus is personal and relational. Why do you suppose after three long years of walking with Jesus, seeing the miracles, the exhaustion, the joy, the laughter, the tears, watching Jesus deal with all kinds of people and the religious elite, and they saw his wisdom and his, his fearlessness. After all that, what is the one thing they asked for him to teach them? To pray. They don't ask for a course on theology. They don't ask for a course on strategic planning on how to bring the kingdom in. They don't ask him uh, for a course on ethics or better behavior. They want to know how to pray.
pray. Because they've come to realize that following Jesus doesn't mean imitating everything he does or repeating everything exactly how he says it. What it really means is culting a relationship with the Father. That that's what prayer, they saw that that's what prayer was. That, that somehow that is what filled and fueled Jesus was cultivating a relationship with God. Peterson writes, the disciples want to know when they ask Jesus to teach them to pray, they want to know how to work out of that God personal, God relational, God love fueled center that they've witnessed Jesus working out of. Because for Jesus, prayer wasn't religion, it was a relationship. Jesus will answer their question in three ways. First, he's going to give a framework. It's shorter in the version of Luke, kind of reminding us this isn't a rote prayer like it, it is a little bit more filled out in Matthew. In Luke, it's shorter. It's a framework. And then he's going to use a parable and an illustration to teach them a little something deeper about what it means to pray. We're not going to spend as much time on the framework, what we call the Lord's Prayer, because John has uh, preached on that pretty in depth in this past year. But first, but let's just talk about it a little bit. Jesus says, ask. Ask the Father for these things. Ask that, that he will reveal himself to the world and make things right. Thy will, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Make yourself known, God. Ask God to meet your, your physical needs. Expand on it. Tell him exactly what you need. Give us bread every day. You can't get any more basic than that. Give us bread and provision every day. And then he says, ask God to keep you forgiven and forgiving. That flow of what flows to us from God flows out of us to others. And then finally, in Luke's version, he says, ask God to protect you from temptation, which means from yourself and from the very real enemy that we have. This prayer has served the world so well and been so meaningful to all of us since it came out of the mouth of Jesus, but it really wasn't offered as a rote prayer, but more of a framework, a pattern for us to take and to then fill out and build on. Just as a take home from the connection to, of today's message into your week, I've given you, or the ushers gave you hopefully a bookmark that has somebody, a favorite author of mine, Brian Zond, wrote this as an expanded. He took the framework and filled it out and built it. I offer it to you to take home this week. Write your own expanded version using this framework. And if you'd like to, email it to me. I'd love to read it. I'd love to pray it with you and for you. So following that, um, after Jesus gives that, that framework, he then moves into the parable and a relatable illustration. Now here's something I want you to know. I'm going to teach you a Bible study tool uh, that we see used throughout Scripture often. Jesus employs a literary tool called compare and contrast to make his point here. He looks at something very familiar to us, human friendship and hospitality in, in the parable, and then takes it even more personal into the parent-child relationship in the illustration. Compare and contrast is used all throughout scripture. Here's some from the Proverbs. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding 
remain silent. Here's one from uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. See the compare and contrast at work there. We might call those, the ones we've just looked at, as, as simple. They're really basic. We see the compare and contrast immediately and we get it. The parables uh, use compare and contrast in a little bit more complex way. And oftentimes Jesus had to explain to the disciples what he meant. And such is the case used in today's parable of what I call the persistent friend versus the reluctant friend. Jesus says, again, remember, he's teaching us something about prayer. About prayer. Okay, suppose you go to your friend's house at midnight and you urgently need some bread. You've had guests show up in the middle of the night and you've been found without anything to offer them. Now remember, today that thing, you know, good grief, give them some cereal, whatever. But note, what we have to understand in that day, hospitality was valued above almost anything. And so a guest showing up at this guy's house and him not having any food for them was a big deal so he goes to the house he's hanging on the door he's even telling him that what need that he has and the friend says go away don't bother me we're all asleep maybe the equivalent today for us would be something like you get a call at midnight and there's an emergency and you run out to your garage and you realize you've got a flat tire and no tools to change it quickly. So you run next door to your neighbor who happens to be your friend and you're knocking on the door and you're, you're telling them what's going on and what kind of friend would say, go away, don't bother me, hey, we're all asleep. Yeah, see, see there's, Jesus is starting to build, build a compare and contrast here. I happen and I look around this room and I know many of you, if I knocked on your door and I told you what was going on because of our friendship, you would throw that door wide open and you would step out and you would help me because of our friendship. We know each other. But Jesus goes on, even if this friend won't help you for friendship's sake, if you keep at it long enough, he's gonna get up because you're persistent. Huh. Okay, so now what are we supposed to learn about prayer from this? That we're kind of a bother to God? Maybe even an inconvenience? An inconvenience to him? What are we supposed to learn? That if we just keep pounding on the, we should, no matter if he's not coming, we should just keep pounding on the door and then God will help us even though he helps us reluctantly. No, <laughs> no, that's not the message here. And that's why it's so important that I'm, I'm teaching you this one literary tool of compare and contrast because at this point in this passage, the teaching is yet incomplete. The disciples have been with Jesus for 20, have been with him 24 seven for three years. And they have absolutely come to see that God is not like the reluctant friend in the parable. They've witnessed God be the friend that sticks closer than a brother. A friend who is an ever-present help in time of trouble. A God whose mercies are new every morning. 
See, those are Old Testament lessons from those disciples' faith. But in Jesus, they see it come alive. And they begin to realize what and who God is in their lives, the relationship that is there. And they want that kind of relationship. Now, is persistence in prayer one of the lessons? Sure it is. Because Jesus goes on right after the parable and he tells them, ask, seek, knock, and you will be heard. You will find the door will be opened. And the verb tense in all three of those is uh, present imperative, which means you start something and you don't stop it. So he is saying to them, ask and keep on asking seek and keep on seeking knock and keep on knocking because you're gonna be heard you're going to find and the door will be opened to you I don't know about you but but if I went to a friend's house in the night and I knocked on their door and I I kind of insisted that they help me and they actually end up helping me but they made it so clear that man, what a pain I was to them that night. I wouldn't go back. And I fear that sometimes because in just our own private reading or in sermons we've heard that, that separated out that parable from the whole teaching, that some of us, and certainly some in the world, have ended up seeing, have just kind of subconsciously thought of God as that reluctant friend. And they've stopped going back now some of us in this very room stopped knocking because we see God as that reluctant friend one who maybe even considers us an inconvenience so let's don't take the parable out of the context of the fuller teaching where we're going to see what Jesus is doing in progression here with the compare compare and contrast because if we don't I know us, I'm human as you are, and in our brokenness and in our insecurity, we can get the wrong impression about God. And I don't want you to leave here today ever again thinking that God sees you as an inconvenience. And But if if you're desperate and you really want something, just keep knocking and then maybe he'll get out of bed and help you. (laughs) That's not who our God is. So God, so Jesus continues. And he brings the comparison into sharper focus and into a more personal relationship that we can identify with by bringing it to that child and parent relationship. He starts off with a rhetorical question. He says, what father among you, what what mother among you, if your child asks for a fish, would give them a snake? Or if your child asks for eggs for breakfast, you'd give this child of yours a scorpion. Well, none of you, he knows that not a one of you would respond to your children like that. And so he continues on. If you sinful people, or I think some translations say even if you evil people, what I really think Jesus is saying, if you fallible people, who try to do your best, but you, you goof up in so many ways. If even you can give good gifts to your children, how much more so is your heavenly father trusted, to be trusted to give that which is good? 
The reluctant friend still gives what is needed. The fallible parent chooses good gifts rather than bad, both in contrast to who God is, to God's character and God's attitude toward us. This is not a teaching on what we have to do in order to get God's attention. It's not what we have to do in order to convince God to give us good gifts instead of bad. This parable, the parable contrasts the reluctant friend who doesn't want to answer the door to the God who will always fling open the door. Jesus asks, and then Jesus contrasts fallible parents, comparing fallible parents who do their best with all of our limitations, who still good give, give good gifts to the infallible father who gives perfect gifts out of his love for us. The daughter of one of our staff this week said something to her mom and then mom told dad and dad told some of us on staff and it was such a precious story. I asked permission to share it and, and she said, yes, I don't mind if you share it, but don't tell my name. So I'm not gonna tell her name. But she said, this teenage girl said to her mom, mom, you and dad, you provide for my needs all the time. Everything I need you provide it. Even half the time before I know that I need it, you've made it available to me. But she said, but you know what? I love to ask dad for what I need because of the way he lights up when I do. Now that's an image that I believe Jesus is trying to reveal to us in this passage. Absolutely. You are not an inconvenience. He's gonna, he lights up. When we say, Jesus, I need this. When I say, Father, could you provide this? He lights up and provides it for us. Okay, so while these stories, I believe, hit the mark, contrasting a faithful God to fair-weather friends and fallible parents, I think they hit their mark, but some of us are still left with some questions to wrestle through. Maybe God appears to you at times as a reluctant friend, too tired or preoccupied, too busy with bigger things to answer our knock. Or maybe some of us feel like we've asked for the egg. We asked for the fish, just the everyday provision, nothing fancy, and we feel like we got the snake. We feel like we got the scorpion instead. You lost the job you loved, your spouse left, and the medical report was not what you had prayed for. I'm not naive to think a few words in one sermon can help us sort all of that out. But as I was studying this passage, it really hit me the last words in, this, in uh, these few verses that maybe there's a nugget of help in it for us. And so I offer it just as something further for you to consider. In Matthew's version of this same teaching, he writes, if you being evil know how to good give gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? I rather like Matthew's version. Luke's version says something different and both are absolutely true. Luke's version finishes the sentence this way. He says, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit 
to those who ask him. Does that feel like a, like a curveball to anybody else? I don't know. Kind of does to me. Uh, we've been talking a lot of things, but a whole, who, who's been talking about the Holy Spirit? Nobody, I didn't think. But now all of a sudden, Luke says, yeah, whoever asks for the Holy Spirit, you know, God's going to give. So we've got to ask the question, what's Luke doing here, bringing in the Holy Spirit at this point? Well, here's what came to my mind through my study. In the Old Testament, whenever God was giving out good gifts, there's several times when God's giving out good gifts, and I'm going to give you an example, when, when finally the Israelites make it to the promised land, and God begins to divide out the beautiful allotments, allotments of land, and he starts saying, okay, Zebulun, your tribe, you get this beautiful piece of land over here, and Joseph, your family, your sons and daughters are going to be delighted along this river over here. And uh, Zebulun, you can have this nice, or Judah, and this nice shaded plain, and so on and so forth. God marches through the tribes of Israel, handing out these beautiful places for them as their inheritance. And then last but not least, he turns to the tribe of Levi. The Levites, the priests who have, they've been the ones closest to God, doing his bidding, serving his people, trying to keep things kosher and holy and, and all that. And God turns to them and he says, Levites, you will not receive any land. And you think, what? Wait for it. Because then he says, I will be your inheritance. Which would you rather have, a piece of land or God himself? And if you say a piece of land, I think you're a little short-sighted, okay? God said something similar to Abraham. He said, I will be your inheritance. I will be your very great reward. And I, I just wonder... Could Luke's message here, bringing the Holy Spirit in at this moment, be a similar message to us? That we may not always get the, the good gifts, the physical gifts, and there's nothing wrong with those. And Jesus is teaching us throughout this parable to ask for those two. And many passages in Scripture tell us that God is the, the best giver, the, the giver of every good gift. So don't hesitate to ask. But it could he be telling us here, but there's something more that I'd like to give you. At some level, we know that every good gift on this earth is temporal. The things we often pray desperately for will all come to an end. Our jobs, our careers, our homes, our, even our bodily life on earth and, and all those that we love, it will all come to an end. You see, the Holy Spirit is on a whole different plane of provision for us. The Holy Spirit is called the comforter, the counselor, the helper. And Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will be with you. He is yours when you are filled with joy or devastated by loss. 
The Holy Spirit will walk with you when you are in need or when you have plenty. It's not a beautiful home or an abundant bank account or a prestigious degree that will be eternally our help and our peace. Good gifts bring little help when there's a dictator bombing your nation. A nice home brings little comfort if your sons and daughters are struggling with with addictions in this life. It's this personal relationship with, with the God who loves us beyond compare as the perfect parent that will matter most in life's hardest moments. Jesus says, oh, you can have all these, these things that you're many, many good gifts, but know this, that God will give the Holy Spirit to anyone, anyone who asks. I've had the privilege the last three years of, of leading a, a small a support group, really, for called Strength for the Journey. For those who are wrestling and who have received a life-changing diagnosis that, that turned their, their whole world upside down. You would think that maybe at times that would be a, a, a hard group to enter, but it is one of my favorite groups to enter because of the depth that I find there among those people. And the things that they share and, the, and what Jesus is revealing to them and showing with them and the way that their lives are being deepened because of this hard thing that has entered, but they are finding a fulfillment and an abundance of the Holy Spirit to walk in this hard moment with them. Prayer, Jesus teaches, is personal and it's relational. And if it matters to you, it matters to God more than you and I can even ask or imagine. I know for me, I have two sons, and if they ask for anything, it's more my joy, just like it was the, uh, the staff person's daughter who said, I just love it because love it dad lights up. I feel the same way. I see one of my sons, and I light up. Joy in my life, that's how you are when God sees you. You are the light of his life. Speaking of my son's sons, I had, and I'm gonna wrap up with this, I had lunch with my youngest recently who at 24, just began to share some of the things he's learned about life. And he said, Mom, it's, life is so beautiful. It's just, he's had, he says, the best two years of his life. And he's just seen so much beauty. And he said, and it's always, though, mixed with so much that is brutal. He's an ER nurse, and he sees plenty of both. And I, I love to hear him talk about both of those things. I'm going to say to you what I said to him, that... This, we will always on this earth live with that mixture of beauty and brutal because we live in a, in a world that's broken. The environment's broken. People are notoriously selfish and brutal and we have a devouring enemy. But God, but God will be our comforter, our guide, our sustainer, our helper until everything 
is finally made well and right. Probably the thing that most helps us know how personal Jesus is to us is to know that first he gave up everything that is his in heaven. And then he came and he gave up everything that was his on the earth for our sake. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. And boy, did he make it personal. He said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup and he passed it and he said, and this is my blood poured out for the sins of many. He did what he did that we might have life and have his presence with us always. 